Well, I want you to know it is really good to see all of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 15, uh, I want you to know that if you're new here today, we are so glad to have you with us. My name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it is a delight to have you with us. Make sure you hang out in the foyer so we can get to know you and uh, fill out that little welcome tab. We are going through the Gospel of Mark. One of the hallmarks of Fellowship Bible Church is we walk through books of the Bible. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We are at Mark chapter 15. I am so glad you're here this morning because we're going to be looking at the pinnacle moment in history. It took place about 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem on a particular Passover. It is an event that has changed the past, present, and future for all individuals. Every single person needs to have a clear understanding of what took place when Jesus died on the cross. Now, you might have some familiarity, but what really happened when Jesus died on the cross? For me, you know, growing up, I was, I was familiar with images of Jesus dying on a cross. I had seen plenty of pictures, um, saw lots of crucifixes. Uh, I, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. It seemed like religious art that I didn't really understand, and maybe wasn't, wasn't certainly not drawn to it, didn't really like it. Um, and I would just say that, you know, I was just aware of it. It had little impact on my life. But that suddenly started changing when I was in college, when I really started investigating Christianity and really starting to try to understand the issues of what does it mean to know God, that the cross of Jesus started taking on a new significance in my life. And that was certainly the case after I became a Christian uh, in the middle of my college years. Um, all of a sudden, the cross took on a whole new significance. In fact, the cross of Jesus and Jesus on the cross began to shape my identity. And for the years that I've been growing as a Christian, I feel like I'm, I'm growing and I'm very much a work in progress. Jesus and what, what he accomplished on the cross has taken on far greater significance in my life. In fact, it's become so very dear and so very meaningful to me. When Jesus died on the cross, what took place? So just to kind of bring you up to speed, we are at the cross at Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. In fact, Jesus, having already been scourged and then nailed to the cross, he has been on the cross for three hours when we pick it up in chapter 15, verse 33, when it says this, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. When Jesus died on the cross, let me tell you, the work of God through Christ was accomplished. And so here we pick it up in verse 33, and he says, at the sixth hour. So this would be noon, according to the Jewish reckoning of time. Jesus was crucified at about 9 a.m., and for three hours, he's been languishing physically on the cross. But something significant takes place, as recorded in verse 33, at noon, a darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, or 3 p.m. This is a darkness that uh, Greek-Roman historians recorded. A three-hour darkness they couldn't explain. Uh, there were several uh, historians that wrote of this. One tried to explain it and say, well... It was a large, long solar eclipse. They couldn't really explain this darkness. 
there are at least two different uh, Christian writers that refer to this darkness, talking about that its extent was throughout the entire Roman Empire. This three-hour period of darkness when Jesus is on the cross. And you're like, well, what was the cause of this darkness? Well, I want you to know, it certainly wasn't Satan. Satan doesn't have cosmic powers to be able to change something like the light of the sun or to bring about a darkness like this. It wasn't uh, an eclipse. I mean, we we know that because uh, in order to have a solar eclipse, you have to have a new moon, right? Passover, by virtue of the fact that they always, Passover always occurred at a full moon, made that an impossibility for it to be a some sort of super long solar eclipse. This darkness wasn't brought about by Satan. It wasn't a solar eclipse. This darkness was a supernatural darkness. It was brought by God. God's presence oftentimes in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is pictured as light. And there's this shining, just brilliant light. But sometimes God's presence is pictured and portrayed as darkness, especially when it comes times for judgment. It is this deep judgment that is about to take place in which God, the Father, brings about this supernatural darkness. For three hours prior to this event at noon, when darkness literally comes over, everything is just black, Jesus had made certain statements. But beginning at noon, he utters nothing. And when a darkness suddenly happens at noonday, like everyone would notice. And this darkness had to take place because no human eye could actually witness the misery and the mystery of what is about to take place. It's rather fascinating. When Jesus was born, do you remember in the middle of the night, there are these shepherds, and all of a sudden there's this brilliant display of light and all these angels? In the middle of the darkness came the light. When Jesus is dying on the cross beginning at noon, in the middle of the day, noonday, there comes a total darkness. This darkness was to hide and not to show the reality of what is about to take place. A darkness that God brings about because God is going to bring about all the pouring out of his just wrath against all sin and pour it out upon Jesus, the innocent one, the one who had committed no sin, the eternal Son of God, who had come for this very purpose to die as the perfect sacrifice and to pay the penalty for sin, it's this one. And that's what takes place in a finite span of time. That which was decreed before the beginning of time, Jesus then enacts the eternal Son of God positioned as one who will die and pay the penalty for sin. We hardly even know what we are talking about. Do you remember when Jesus is praying in the garden? He prayed that this cup would pass from him. What is the cup? It's the cup of God's divine wrath being poured out, wave upon wave upon Jesus. And yet, remember what he said? Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is where atonement takes place. This is where propitiation, where God satisfies his, the, the payment for sin in Jesus. 
And it takes place from noon to 3 p.m. And it's at this time then, verse 34, at the ninth hour, which would be about 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, a psalm that was very familiar to the Jews. It was written a thousand years prior to this event by King David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to know those are some of the most profoundly mysterious verses, verses and verse and words in the Bible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, up until that point, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had only known intimate, loving fellowship with the Father and the Son. And now at this point, it's not that he would cease being the eternal Son of God, it's that he would cease knowing the presence of his Father. It would be removed the sweetness of fellowship, this loving personal relationship, all of a sudden, that support is gone. And he would face the just wrath that God has due to his moral nature against sin. And it was exactly what Jesus said. If there's any other way to not experience this breakdown of fellowship, let it pass. It's not that when Jesus ceased being the eternal son of God, it's that he ceased knowing the eternal presence and the fellowship of his Father. And when Jesus asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not a rhetorical question. He's asking, why have you forsaken me? Why have I become the penalty for sin, bearing the wages of sin even in my own body? Why? because of his love for me and for you and for us. The answer is he did it for us. Jesus was willing to experience the extreme brokenness of being forsaken by his Father so that you and I will know the forgiveness of sins and be able to forever have fellowship with God. And he did this. And let me give you the one word for it if you're trying to figure it out because of love, love, and it changes everything. You know, this verse, this is the only time in all of the gospel accounts that Jesus doesn't refer to his father as the father. The only time that he refers to him as my God, my God is here. All the other times, father, why? Because there's the immense breakdown in fellowship when Jesus became sin on our behalf. It's so powerful. And yet, can't you even hear the, the words, my God, my God, this yearning, the pain, the anguish, and that's what we find right here. Jesus isn't dying on the cross to be an example for us. He's not a martyr for a good cause, starting a new religion. He's, he's not uh, actually showing the awfulness of sin that's why he's dying, to show how awful sin is. And he most certainly isn't paying a ransom for Satan. Like, well, he had to buy off Satan, so he had to die. 
No, he went to the cross and he did so to pay the penalty for our sin and do so on our behalf. Remember what it says like in Romans 6.23, the first part, for the wages of sin is death, right? Like it says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The wages of sin is death. You know what death is? Death is a separation. When you die physically, your soul is separated from your body. You and I are spiritually dead Our souls are separated from God. The wages of sin is what has brought about this death. And Christ has paid the penalty of sin, and he did so on our behalf. Here, let me give you a great verse. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It said this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How powerful is this? And so Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But look at verse 35. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. The pain of the father's absence was made even greater by the ridicule and the mocking of those around him. The Jewish people, the leaders, the very ones that he has come for, the people of Israel, and they're mocking him. They know exactly what he's saying. Some people say, well, they just, when he, they heard him, you know, call out, they were, he got confused and they kind of sounded, kind of sounded like Elijah. And so they're like, well, maybe they, they're, he's calling for Elijah. Because after all, Elijah is uh, the one who is going to come before the Messiah or a prophet like Elijah will come right before Messiah. Elijah was the one who was taken up into heaven. Perhaps if this is really the Messiah, God will send Elijah down to rescue him. And But this is a whole mocking and a ridicule. They have far dismissed that Jesus is the Messiah because they thought the Messiah would be untouchable to something like a crucifixion. And so they're mocking him and scorning him. And notice in verse 36... And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. (laughs) Can't you hear him laughing? And you're like, okay, that's just a, a minor detail. And why is that recorded? I want you to see the power and the sovereignty of God, especially in the events of the cross. There was one final prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before Jesus would die. It's recorded in Psalm 69, verse 21, and it says this, And for my first thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. They're mocking and ridiculing and taking this reed, this hyssop branch. They dip it in this sour wine, it's like basically like vinegar, and they give it to Jesus, and he drinks it in the midst of his great thirst not because he had want any way to just quench his thirst, but so that he would fulfill every single prophecy that was written by Messiah, about Messiah. And then in verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus' life just didn't slowly just kind of ebb and flow away. He yielded it. 
John 19, verse 30 says, he cried out, it is finished. To tell us die. I've accomplished it. It is a cry of victory. It is finished. He didn't just suddenly just Evan flow away. He yielded his body and he cried out, it is finished. And when Jesus at 3 p.m. takes his final breath and he dies on the cross, do you know what is happening at the temple? This is the very same time that all the Passover lambs are being sacrificed. They're killing them. These sacrifices of lambs representing over and over again this idea that death and someone has to die in our place. Blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. At the very same time, they're all killing their Passover lambs. The Passover lamb, God's Passover lamb, dies on the cross. Let it sink in. You know, I want you just for a minute to think and just imagine all of the sins ever committed, Jesus paying for them all. Pride, envy, hate, lust, murder, immorality, all sorts of wickedness. Jesus paying for it all, atoning for all of it. Not most of it, all of it. It is finished. And you see, what is taking place is the expression of the eternal love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. And Jesus pays it all. He pays it all for us. You know, you and I, you know what we're really looking for? We're looking for love. A deep, overwhelming, never-ending, perfect love. And that might describe a lot of your existence. You're trying to find that kind of love and peace, hope and acceptance, maybe in a career, likely in a person, imaginary or real, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, family. But I want you to know the kind of love you're looking for can't be satisfied by a mother, by a spouse, by a boyfriend or girlfriend, by a family. The kind of love that you are really looking for is the love of God. It is the love that is demonstrated here at the cross. And friends, when you, when you see this and experience this and know that God loves me this much, that Jesus died for me in such a way, friends, it frees you. It releases you. It transforms you. You can be at peace. And so Jesus, he utters his last words, Luke records them, Luke 23, verse 46, he says, Father, into your hands, I commit your spirit, my spirit. And that's exactly what we see in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He voluntarily gave up his life. The perfect lamb became the blemished lamb so that you and I could have forgiveness, can have real relationship with God because sin has been taken care of. You see, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Well, the work of God through Christ was accomplished. But there's something else that took place when Jesus died on the cross, and that is the way to God through Christ was access. Take a look at verse 38. 
There were several miracles that took place when Jesus died on the cross. Look at verse 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There were two veils uh, at the temple. One veil was before the holy place. There was a second veil, and that was a veil between the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And there was, it was referred to as the mercy seat. Once a year, the high priest actually would go behind this massive curtain and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat as a demonstration that a sacrifice by blood had to be accomplished in order for there to be relationship with the one true holy God. And he was only by, behind that curtain for just a short period of time. And it was a massive curtain. This, this particular curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. It was made of the finest wool, dyed in blue, purple, and scarlet. Uh, I read that it took 300 priests to actually wash it. It's massive. It was four inches thick, okay? And notice what took place. The moment Jesus dies, verse 38, and the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. No man split the veil. God did. And he did it in a way that only he could do it from top to bottom. Literally, whoosh. And he tears it open. And all of a sudden, there is access to the presence of God. God did it to show that the only way you can actually have access to the one true living God is through the sacrificial Passover lamb, which is Jesus himself. You see, for nearly 1,500 years, they had this event where that high priest would just go behind there, sprinkle that blood, and he would come out. But now the way to God and relationship with him is made open and inviting all. And it's through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This... um, This event is so significant. When Jesus dies, he brings an end to the old covenant. All of the rituals, all that had been prescribed in the law, have been fulfilled in full by Jesus. And he shows that God demonstrates that access to God is through Christ and Christ alone. In fact, uh, in AD 70, the Romans were actually going to destroy the temple. And since then, there have never been any of these rituals practiced. Why? Because they're not needed. What is needed? Faith in Jesus, the one who is the sacrificial lamb, who's made access to God possible through himself. And it's really interesting, if you've read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6, when it talks about the early church and the people that were placing their faith in Jesus, in Acts 6-7, it makes this note that there were many priests, priests that served at the temple, there were many priests that were converting to Christianity and putting their faith in Jesus. And you got to think, these priests that had served in the temple and they kept looking at that curtain all the time, that great barrier, they'd have loved to seen what was behind that. Guess what? When that temple was, when that, at the temple, when that curtain was torn, that's where access with God. They knew that God had done this. And it happened at the very moment Jesus died. And they saw the reality. And they put their faith and trust 
in Christ. What took place when Jesus died on the cross? Well, the work of God through Christ was accomplished. Second thing you need to note is that the way to God through Christ was access. But there's one other thing I want you to see. When Jesus died on the cross, the worship of God because of Christ was announced. When that darkness lifted, Jesus uttered his last breath. He called out, it is finished. The temple tore. There was also an earthquake and the light returned. I want you then to see what takes place in verse 39. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Here we see the centurion. We've met him before. A centurion, uh, the centurions were really the backbone of the Roman uh, Empire and the Roman army. A centurion meant that you were in charge of uh, 100 soldiers. In his case, he had a unique role as the exactor mortis, one who is trained and highly skilled and bringing about an extremely painful death. It was this centurion who was standing there in front of Jesus. Now, certainly, this was, this was an execution unlike any other because he had certainly heard these Jewish leaders and all their hostility toward Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. Possibly, he had heard Pilate and Jesus, if he was in close proximity, when Jesus was asked by Pilate, are you a king? And Jesus informed me he was but not a kingdom of this world, like you might think of it, a kingdom of this earth, a different king. I would have raised some questions if you heard that, but one thing that would have really stood out in his mind is that Pilate declared Jesus innocent, guilty of no wrong. What evil, what wrong has he done? Nothing. And yet, the Jews, especially the leaders, kill him, crucify him. We'd have, rather have Barabbas, a real insurrectionist, than Jesus. And Pilate could see nothing but a riot was happening. He washed his hands of it, and he said, You're, his blood is upon you. I find nothing wrong with him. And they said, yeah, that's fine. His blood be on us and our children. For a Roman soldier who is well-trained and killing people in, in ways that you and I could never really imagine. And he'd seen a lot of decrees for execution, but never one like this. But once Pilate gave the word, kill him, scourge him, and crucify him, he took over like a machine. You deal with people like this, you, you are an executioner by trade, you are the exactor mortis, it becomes mechanical. There's a hardness of heart that takes over that you and I could never fathom. He would oversee the mockings, the scourging, the horrific scourging where they could take you to about an inch of your life. He would oversee that. Crown of thorns placed on his head. Once the scourging was done, he would see them take that garment, rough garment, put it on that, the bloody back of Jesus. He would see all of that. In fact, he'd oversee it. When they were marching him through the streets to bring about ridicule, he would be the one that would be there and watching it all. When they saw Jesus collapse and physically not able to carry his beam anymore, 
they'd commandeer a guy standing there and like you, pick it up now, we're going. He didn't have a choice. It was this centurion that would then have Jesus and those two other prisoners that were crucified on either side laid down on that beam, and he'd give the order to pound those six, seven-inch nails through their wrists and their feet, and then to raise them up and to shove them into that hole in that ground where every joint in their body would be undone. And he'd watch it. He'd seen this all before, but he had never seen a death like Jesus. He had never seen someone suffer with such nobility, such courage, such power. He certainly would have witnessed the scene where they, even the criminals on either side were mocking him. And yet, remember the one, this one criminal, like, he changed. And it was Jesus who said, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. He'd never heard things like that before. And then, of course, that darkness for three hours, that would unnerve anybody. So he was definitely on guard. All those soldiers, like, what in the world is happening? And they stood that way for three hours on full guard. But I've got to think that of all the things that he saw and heard, there was one statement that just left a huge impression on him. It was the words that Jesus said on multiple occasions, over and over. They're recorded in Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus kept repeating these words while he's on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Who is this? And so we see him standing there. And notice what he said when the centurion, verse 39, was standing right in front of him. He saw the way he breathed his last And he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is profound. Do you remember how the Gospel of Mark began? Mark 1.1. It says this, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The very first person who declares that Jesus is indeed the Son of God is not a Jewish person, not one of the leaders that had a lot of the Scriptures even memorized. It was a super-hardened Gentile soldier. To be specific, the exactor mortis, who declares this, this one, is the Son of God. Luke tells us that he actually began praising God, saying, certainly this man is innocent. I want you to know that this is so profound, this worship of Jesus You know, he is a dedicated Roman soldier. All Roman citizens were dedicated to one person. In fact, the whole phrase, son of God, it was very familiar to them. They would use it on a somewhat regular basis. It was, by the way, on their coins. You know who they thought the son of God was? Caesar. That's right, the emperor. Even on their coins, it would say, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And so they would show deference to the emperor. They called him the son of God. It would be an act of utter betrayal to a Roman to call anyone other than the emperor the son of God. But I want you to know that the hardness of this man's heart was melted 
the darkness that he lived in that defined him, the light of God broke through. And how was that possible? Because of the love of Jesus. According to church tradition, this, this centurion becomes an actual believer and follower of Jesus. And notice he saw, he heard, like in verse 37. And I want you to know the, how profound this is. And your darkness and your hardness of heart, what really allows one to experience God breaking in, no matter what you've done, no matter how hard you think your heart is, is the seeing Jesus losing himself and the fellowship with the Father because of his infinite love for the Father and his infinite love for you. Do you see? Do you hear? He's standing right in front of the cross. And friends, I'll tell you, that's where we find our freedom. This is where we find our life. That addiction that you're facing, what draws you away from God, these patterns in your life that are eating you alive, the guilt and the shame, the things that just like just bring terror. Every time you think of them, you want forgiveness? All that immorality and that wickedness and how you defied God and denied Him and used His name in vain and the things you're so embarrassed about. Do you want forgiveness? Look at Jesus in the cross and see the love that He has for you. You see, Christ's death on the cross is where our life with God begins. Listen, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, friends, this is the pinnacle moment of history. This is the hinge of history. This is where everything changes, past, present, and future. Friends, this is where you find your identity, your peace, your hope, your life in Jesus who died on your behalf. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who, who, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God. What is that joy? The joy is this, that those who he paid the penalty for are redeemed. They see him, they know him, and they love him, and they live in the freedom and the joy of his resurrected life. That's the joy. That's why the eternal Son of God went through all of this. And that is when you taste and see that kind of love and you believe it. I don't care how far gone you think you are when you believe it. You step into that love. You know that grace. It frees you. You've got strength, life. You have God. Author and speaker Brennan Manning tells an amazing story of just what his growing up years were like in Brooklyn. He grew up with his very good friend, Ray. Uh, They went to school together. They did pretty much everything together, and they even actually bought a car together as teenagers. I didn't know you could even do that, but they did. Um, They uh, would go on double dates together. Uh, They actually both entered into the, enlisted in the army together. They went to boot camp together, 
and they uh, even fought together. One night in a foxhole, these two guys, longtime friends, were actually recounting life and times in Brooklyn when all of a sudden a live grenade ends up in their foxhole. Ray smiles at Brennan, throws down his candy bar, and throws himself on top of that grenade. It goes off, and it kills Ray. But Brennan survives. Several years later, Brennan actually becomes a priest. And they told him, you're going to have to find a name of a saint. And there's really only one that he could think of. And that was his friend, Ray Brennan. And so he took his last name. Several years later, he went and visited Ray's mother. And they were recounting old times and having tea together. And then Brennan asks Mrs. Brennan, do you think Ray loved me? And she puts down her teacup. She walks over and she puts her finger in his face. And she says this, what more could he do for you? And he said it was like an epiphany that went off in my mind. It was an epiphany of God's love for me. What more could he do for me? You know, if you're struggling with, like, could God really love a person like me? What more could he do for you? I want you to know that the cross and Jesus on the cross has taken on a whole new significance for me. When I am facing temptation, when you feel that wave coming on, you know what I'm talking about? Do this. Think of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. When you are lacking a sense of peace, purpose, and identity, think of Jesus on the cross. When you want assurance, are my sins really forgiven? I mean, like even the really bad stuff I did. Yeah, think of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. And if you perhaps are going through a dark night of the soul, and you can't even sense God's presence, think of Jesus on the cross Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. It is finished. And you will find that he, when you ask, gives you the faith to move forward, not based on your feelings, but based on him who was crucified and rose again on your behalf. Friends, remember this. Remember this one question. What more could he do for you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the glory of the cross, Jesus dying on our behalf. For someone who is here today who has never truly trusted in Christ, would they just pray with me and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin. I believe. You know me, you know my wretchedness, you know my sin, but God, I need forgiveness and I need real relationship with you. No games. Today, Lord, I believe. Increase my faith. And Father, for those of us who do know you, may we never settle for superficiality. You've called us to the deep end of the pool to know your love, your goodness, and your grace, to walk in it, to live in it, to show it, and rejoice in it. So God, fill us with the wonder of Jesus on the cross. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.